Hey guys, just have a quick note here before we get on to the show. Just wanted to remind you that we are still holding our Gen Con contest. We have not had that many entries, which is kind of sad for us, but good for you because that means there's still not a lot of competition and you have a chance to snag a free four-day badge to Gen Con this year, 2015. All you have to do to enter is to go back and listen to any of our previous shows all the way back to the beginning, uh, any of the table topics, dungeon talks, show and tells, campaigns, the trials, you name it. If it's already out, it's on the table. Then you just have to send us an email letting us know what the title of the episode is that you pick and then what you would have titled it if you were the one giving it the title. It's our What's in a Name contest. So please, uh, if you are interested in going to Gen Con and you'd like to, a chance to win a free badge, all you got to do is submit it, send it to me an email to podcast at therpgacademy.com. Again, in the subject line, put what's in a name, and then in the body, just put the title of the episode and then your new title. And you can do this as many times as you want, but only once per each episode. So that's about 200 possible options right now for you to enter. We're going to take our favorites and then we will uh, put up a poll on the website. And at that point, it will be sort of a popularity contest. Whoever gets the most votes will be the winner. And then we want to do this pretty quickly so that we can get the badge to them before Gen Con registration goes live. And whoever wins will have a chance to register for events as normal. So with that out of the way, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Table Topics, the general advice and discussion podcast from the RPG Academy. I am Michael, and this is Table Topics, episode number 75, Numenera Recap and Review. So recently we had the fortune of having a one-shot of the Numenera game ran for us by Lex Starwalker, who is a fellow podcaster. Uh, Lex has several podcasts, including his most recent Game Master's Journey. And he also is a frequent GM of the Numenera game, so he seemed an obvious choice, and he did a fantastic job of leading me and my regular crew through a one-shot of the game system. So earlier this same week, the actual play episodes have already aired, uh, including an episode zero, which was our pre-game rules review, and then our post-game rules discussion. Uh, this is where we got back together as a group and kind of discussed that game in detail and what we liked and didn't like about the game system, that kind of thing. Unfortunately, there was a little bit of a lag between when we actually played the game and when we were able to get back together for this recap. So we're a little fuzzy on the details, more so than we probably would have liked. Uh, but overall, it was very positive. We all liked Numenera, some of us more than others. But overall, it was a very positive experience. And once again, I want to thank uh, Lex for his time. I thought he did a great job, and I encourage you guys to check out his podcast as well over on StarWalkerStudios.com as well as on iTunes. So anyway, on to the show. Here is Table Topics, episode number 75, Numenera Recap and Review.
Hello, and welcome to Table Topics. I am Michael, and I have brought along with me, as I always do, my favorite co-host and yours, the Caleb G. Caleb, how are you doing tonight, sir? I am trapped in the Matrix. There are black cats everywhere. I don't know what's going on, but other than that, I am excellent. How about you? I'm doing very well, sir. Thank you very much for asking. Now, we like to use these table topics to try to share some of the experience that Caleb and I have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But we understand that the advice that we give or the opinions that we share will not be applicable at every table, every time. But there is one piece of advice that we feel is pretty universal. And Caleb, what is that one piece of advice? If you're having fun, you're doing it right. That is correct, sir. So no matter what game you play, what system, what edition, or what rules you use, don't use, or misuse, if you're having fun, then you're playing the game correctly. Now on to tonight's show, we are going to talk about Numenera. As we have done here recently, this is a part of our The Trials series, and we had the opportunity to have a one-shot of Numenera ran for us by guest GM Lex Starwalker of Starwalker Studios. Now, Lex uh, has several podcasts that he's a part of. Uh, he has a couple specifically about Numenera, and more recently, he started a new podcast called Game Master's Journey, which is, can also be found on the same uh, website, which again is starwalkersstudios.com. So as someone who's ran and played a lot of Numenera, he was a great choice to run us through our one shot. And we have brought back all the players. So myself, Caleb, Matthew. Say hello, Matthew. Hello. And Scott Classic. Howdy, everybody out there in Radio Land. Excellent. So we are going to get together and we're going to talk about the game that we played uh, of Numenera, which the actual play episodes should have already come out this week. So hopefully you've checked those out already and just kind of break it down on what we liked, what we didn't like and thoughts and feelings, so on and so forth. So we'll start as we've done pretty much uh, usual for these um, table topics. We'll start with kind of big picture stuff. So Scott, classic, I'll start with you. Some overall thoughts and impressions about the Numenera game that we played uh, with uh, GM Lex. Starting at the bottom, are we? All right. Well, it can only get better from here. I enjoyed a number of aspects of the game. I, I enjoyed their their sort of unique take on the the apocalyptic or post-apocalyptic state of the, the world where where catastrophe had happened, and yet uh, we as a species had, had marched, uh, of course, onward and, and continued to try and profit through our very individualistic schemes, as, as we all know, most campaigns are designed around those. I enjoyed the universe. I think we, we only dabbled into it, but it was enough of a dabble that I really wanted to get more. And I, I thought the mechanics were uh, suitable to the system. That said, I think I had a, a, you know small gripes and rough edges here and there, and I'm sure we'll get into those. Thank you very much for that. Matthew, we'll go to you next. What, are, what were some of your overall thoughts, big picture, about our Numenera game? Um, I, I liked it. It was an interesting system. It had uh, a lot of wild, different, very familiar uh, things about it, you know, based on the world. The world was an interesting take on, on a, a an Earth that had gone through a whole lot of shit and was still ticking so that was that was cool and in terms of the uh the rules and the, the everything it, it seemed to have a bunch of elements of like fate and and D&D and, &D and just, you know uh Shadowrun excuse me and all this other stuff so it was cool it was a nice amalgamation of things everything brought back at least one piece of nostalgia from somewhere else Caleb how about you sir 
I really, really enjoyed Numenera. Uh, I had heard lots and lots of good things about it, um, but I was very lazy when it came to tracking down the book, and now I regret that. <laughs> um, I think I would have been playing Numenera a lot more uh, had I researched it previously. Uh, we had a great game. Like Scott said, we really only dipped into the nature of the world, and I certainly want to uh, go back there. Um, I really liked the system. I liked some of the uniqueness of it. I liked uh, the freedom it gave us as players to do some pretty cool things. Um, but it still had that real uh, kind of gritty, brutal, old-school feel uh, where things were actually dangerous, and there was a lot of risk with what we were doing. So I had a, overall, I had a great, great experience. So what about you? Wrap it up. I really enjoyed it as well. It's a it's an interesting game for me. It's the first game I've ever played that the GM does not roll any dice. And I'm, I'm sure we will get into that when we get again into Scott's nitty gritty. Uh, so I found that very interesting. But it, it kind of felt like a Reese's Peanut Butter Cup of RPGs for me. I've got my, my fantasy got mixed in with my sci-fi. Because in the, in the world setting that you, we are so far in the future, you know, like billions of years into the future, that and society has now been rebuilt and collapsed, I think, eight times before, because in the, the setting material, this is the ninth world. And yet we are exploring this world having come out of like a dark age. So even though there's these fantastical elements, which would be represented by magic in most societies, or most, or I should say most RPGs, in this world, they're represented by technology. And mostly it's technology that people don't understand. And one of the things about medieval games that usually happen is that we take a sort of pseudo-European 13th century landscape and then we just say, okay, there's also magic on top of it. But that doesn't really make a lot of sense because if there was magic, it would have drastically changed how the world was evolved, which is one of the reasons why I like Eberron. But this is saying... You know, we've got all this crazy technology, but no one knows how to use it, which makes a lot more sense. So I liked it, but there's, I, I think I need to play this a lot more to fully get my head wrapped around it. Uh, there's things about it I didn't quite like, and there's things I thought were pretty interesting. So we'll we'll kind of move into some of the, the specifics, and maybe that'll come out a little bit more. But overall, it was a very positive experience. And again, I just want to thank Lex. I think I'll, he did a great job. We've been very lucky here recently. Uh, Nat was an amazing GM for our Shadows game or I should say shadow. We called it shadows every freaking time. And it pissed me off when I listened back to it. It's shadow of the demon Lord, not shadows. That's my fault. Uh, so Nat did an amazing job. And I think Lex did an amazing job as well. So his skill as a, as a GM also helped our experience. Uh, so we'll start going back to the other way. So Kale, what are some of the positive things specifically that you liked about the game? Well, one of the things I really liked was the character creation. Uh, essentially, characters are kind of a mad lib put together of uh, what you are and what you do and how you do it. And it's really, really simple, but it, uh, it doesn't eliminate depth of choice and option when it comes to making your characters and doing things. So I think even though we used pre-gen characters, I think that aspect of the game was really one of the first appealing factors to me. Beyond that, I mean, the mechanics of rolling the dice and adding things, that doesn't change. Uh, nothing really new there. But I also liked, I liked the concept of uh, the different pools of points that reflected both your hit points 
and your ability to modify your actions, kind of investing your character's willpower or endurance to accomplish certain feats. And we've always talked about that discrepancy between trying to do something quote-unquote the real way and the game way and that line that exists between hit points and stats and a real method of attacking somebody or making a skill check. And while there's never going to be a perfect solution, the pool system that Numenera uses is really unique. It's interesting, it's fresh, and it's a pretty damn good approximation of how things might actually work. Very cool. All right, Matthew, what about you? What are some of the specific things that you enjoyed about our Numenera game? I liked how uh, quick... uh, I know we didn't create our own characters, but I like how quick the character sheet was. Like, it was just, like... It was literally a sentence that had, like... uh, It was a Mad Lips, you know? You inserted words in these three places, and that made your character. And then everything else was kind of secondary. You picked a couple things, and it it was really quick. It's like one of those games they say you can just be, like... Oh, you want to play this game? Yeah, sure. Well, all right, we're playing in two minutes. So uh, I, I enjoyed that. Besides that, it, it, the vagueness of it leads to a lot of specificity, even though it's so uh, open. So that was cool. All right, Classic Scott, uh, what were some of your specific likes about the game? I really enjoyed how they handled magic items, specifically the prevalence of one-use magic items. I don't know, as, as a player, I hoard items compulsively, especially one-use or limited-use items. I will never use them. Maybe that says something about me and the junk I have in my basement. But And, and as, as a DM, it's it's uh, you know often a pain for me to pick out just the right items, especially if they can be used repeatedly. I love the idea where, where you roll on a very large table and you get a collection of uh, extraordinarily varied, vastly interesting one-use items, but you're only... I loved the sort of the the mythos that you're only uh, able to carry so many on your person at one time, or else they would cataclysmically inter-network and create an AI that would find Sarah Connor or something else terrible would happen. I find that a, a really compelling idea conceptually, and I thought, uh, uh, both as a player and a DM, I thought that would work really well at my table. So for me, kind of echoing what uh, Matt and Caleb said, I think character creation is a big plus for me. As I continue to try to find more and more ways to introduce new people into RPGs, that is one of the barriers that uh, I think a lot of people have to entry is how do I create a character? How do I, how do, I do this to represent me? And even the newest edition of Dungeons and Dragons, which I think is, is one of the most simple versions, I still on Reddit every day see at least two or three posts that are uh, new to D&D. How do I create a character? Uh, what's the best class? Uh, where should I put my stats? So it still has become somewhat complicated, where this, as both of them said, is like a Mad Lib. You, you pick three things, and you plug them into a sentence, and that's really kind of your character. So I really, really enjoy that uh, as a player and as a DM. But the biggest thing for me that I liked is, as a player, I love exploration of the world. That is one of the things that I enjoy, because you know, as we all know, I don't care that much about combat. I think it's one of the least interesting aspects of the game. So I really enjoy mysteries and and learning things about the game, about the world, and about the characters I'm interacting with. And because this is so alien, it's not just Middle Earth one more time. It is a completely vastly different landscape where you could be going to a different planet. I'm sure there's like moon bases if there's even a moon on this world. There's rocket ships. There's, you know, teleportation, whatever. I, I could see myself having a lot of fun just 
learning stuff about the world as a player that would keep me very interested for a very long time. So that's probably my favorite thing about it. It's ease of character creation and just the, the uniqueness of the world that makes me want to explore that world and learn more about it. So then we'll kind of go back the other way. What were some things that you did not like about this system? And we'll start with you, Scott. I, uh, well, um, I would say the currency. I thought uh, they did a marvelous job. The, 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 the currency system of, of basically buttons and doodads, and, and this may be an artifact of just how it was explained to us, but to me, the, the currency system, while, while the strength is that it really well justifies why it is that a random spider-like creature would have coinage in its pocket somehow, right? It's saving up to buy that wedding ring. It, it justifies why these alien objects from distant worlds from different cultures all have currency on them. But what it doesn't do is, is since it's so vague, it doesn't well justify why one thing is currency and another thing is not. Or why I can't take an existing large piece of currency and split it into smaller pieces of currency. Why why we have some atomic unit of currency or how that's defined. And so I would say that, uh, to my mind or my impression, was the weakest part of the setting and the system that I saw. So the logic they created with a world that values doodads and trinkets doesn't hold up to someone going, oh... Well, I can game the system because I have found two doodads. I can break those down into near infinite doodads and become rich. So it's like, hey, this is a cool idea, but you can't really follow it logically to its progression. Otherwise, it would break down the economy. So I agree with you there. Uh, it, you know, I'm going to hand wave that and move on. But if you do think about it too long, it kind of gets you into a headache. All right. So, Matthew, something, something, it doesn't have to be all of them, but something about the game that you didn't really care for. I, I did um, kind of rationalize the doodad thing and the little sprockets uh, as uh, people who recycle computer parts for the uh, <laughs> precious metals. I was like, I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. Like that's something I'm actually looking to get into because I'm poor. But all right, all right, cool. <laughs> and I, my problem was actually just like um, solved by uh, Scott's uh, like of the system. My original problem was uh, I didn't like the one-use magic items. I thought they were silly. And then he went on about how he hoards magic items, and and I was like, you know what? That's a good point. <laughs> Damn. Uh, so so I'm sorry. Scott fixed my problem, and uh, and I don't really re I don't really have a very overt problem with the system that I can recall. Uh, that was the only one I had is is the one use magic items was weird to me. But then when Scott rationalized it, I was like, I was like, you know what? That's right. You you, you do give someone this uh, you know this master ball and they're sitting there going, do I use it? Do, I, 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 I don't. Okay. So. <laughs> All right. That's fine. All right, Caleb, uh, you, anything in particular, you did not care for the system. Well, I feel that if I don't go off on the tangent of the one use magic items, I'll be left out of the party. That's where I'm going. So I, at first I was a little bit hesitant to use them because we only had two of them each, and I was like, I don't see a good use for them. I don't want to waste them. But then Lex started giving us, like, ten of them at a time. And obviously that was because this was a one-shot and we weren't playing a long campaign, and he was just throwing stuff at us so we could get a taste for the system. And I loved it at that point, because then we were just dishing treasure out. We were trading who had what item. We were blowing through them just to see what they would do. And we actually did come up with some really unique ways of using them, I think, towards the end of the adventure. In a regular game, I agree that 
having only one or two at a time would still make me hesitant to using them. But that over uh, overbearing rule that if you have too many of them, they might explode or kill you arbitrarily would encourage me to keep going. Back to the original question, though, I think the only thing I didn't like was some of the finer aspects of how the mechanics worked. And I don't blame this on the system itself. I blame this on our limited exposure to the system. But there certainly was some confusion from my part about how you spent points out of your various pools and how many you could spend and how those changed the roles. There was a really interesting mechanic from the DM side of the table about not rolling and having things be in set numerical values. And from the player standpoint, there was this weird confusion of multiplying things by three and our expenditure changed basically the DC of what we were doing. And there was this really weird disconnect where I never had that aha light bulb moment of I knew how to run my character. But again, we played the game for four hours and we had 20 minutes of how the game works ahead of that time. I still had a blast and Lex did an excellent job of explaining and running everything. So I didn't feel lost at any point in time, but I didn't understand it as well. Yeah, I 100% agree. Both of you have kind of hit on the two things that I had as issues as well. The first being the magic items. And in addition to being well known for not liking combat, I'm equally well known to saying I don't really enjoy an abundance of magic items in the game. I have never seen a magic item in your game other than a magic dagger, but we get magic daggers all the fucking time. <laughs> so, but the, the but making them one use kind of solves the problem in a way because it keeps it from becoming you know a Monty Hall situation where you have the perfect tool every single time necessarily because you have a bag full of magic hammers and you just whatever you know whatever nail you're trying to hit you've got the right tool for but understanding that Lex specifically said that there is a limit to the number that you can have that encourages you encourages you to use them because you know you're going to get more and we didn't play with that rule because it was probably just caused more confusion than it was worth for the game so we ended up with a lot more than we probably should have but specifically what bothered me is there was one moment in the game where we we conquered, I think it was when we conquered the robot. Actually, it was before that. The robot was the second time. The first time was when there was just like a junk room because oh, there's just a bunch of junk in here. And we're like, okay, well, we'll, we'll look for new Monera in here. And we rolled and we rolled really well. And we got like 10 things. And he started rolling on his charts which I appreciate as a game master that there's charts. You don't have to like ahead of time decide everything you're going to find. But then it just seemed like it was like just, it was like a logic bomb for me, just like the money was a logic bomb for Scott. It's like, wait, there's 10 of these crazy, somewhat powerful things just lying here. And I get that this was an enclosed environment because of the story. But if that's the same process that you're going to use all the time, then you're going to have a situation where you beat the goblin and then it turns out the goblin actually had a thermonuclear device in his pocket. He just never got around to using it. And so that, that just kind of bothers, like make, makes my logic not really fit. 
And it reminds me of my worst case of this, which is probably why I was traumatized. Way back in my day of second edition, I had a DM who did the same thing. He followed everything by the book and rolled the magic charts. And we found a throne. It was just, you know, a chair, a throne. And he rolled the magic thing. And we found a suit of plain armor hidden inside the throne. Which, again, was dumb, and a better DM just would never never have had that happen. But I, every time I get ready to give a magic item, I think, is this a suit of armor and a throne? Like, and if, it, if it bothers me, then I don't do that. The other thing was uh, the kind of the mechanics of rolling. I'm completely with you, Caleb. There's one time, it was four hours, I don't expect it to have system mastery. But it seemed overly complicated that you have everything as a division of three, so you have a difficulty of two, but it's actually a six. And, you know, when you're dealing with such small numbers, even someone who's math deficient like I am, I can catch on to that pretty quick. But it seemed like it was just a way to make sure they use the D20. Like I kept thinking, there's an easier way to do this, but they wanted to use a D20 and they found a way to do it. And I think they should have just done a different mechanic, use a die 100, use a dice pool. It just, it seemed like it was overly complicated to make it simple if that makes any sense well i think and again we didn't design the game we didn't read really the book yet we don't have the hands-on experience it's very likely that if we sat down and read the book we would be absolutely proven wrong with every word that is coming out of our mouths at this point i think though at least the way i understood it that system was to create the ability for the GM to just say this is a level one or a level four. And then on the player side, there was the translation to make that what you would roll. And I liked the fact that as a GM, you didn't have to worry about the dice and the stats and all the little fiddly bits of what an enemy or an NPC or a a puzzle or a trap would do you would just say well this is a level one monster this is a level three puzzle and then the players would convert those numbers into rollable and attainable values that being said i still am not 100 percent on board with it but i think that's where they were coming from that's my perception i'm probably wrong well, we did have a conversation um, at the end, which will end up being in the first episode because I kind of combined the pre-talk and the post-talk stuff into one episode, which is going to be out on Monday, where I do think from a GM standpoint, it actually does kind of work very well because you can kind of mix and match and go, okay, I want this to be a level three encounter. And that means everything they're going to roll is going to be a nine minus whatever... Uh, you know, edges they have or focus that allows them to spend their pool. And I know that a level three encounter should do this much damage because they do set damage. They don't have a variable damage, which I'm also a fan of uh, in some ways. I, I like it as a, from a DM standpoint, I'm probably not as much of a player, but then you can kind of mix and match things and go, okay, well, I want it to be a level three encounter, but I'm going to make it hit like a level five, but then I'm going to let it get hit as a level one and you kind of make like a glass cannon that the, your players are fighting. And I think in game terms, it would be very easy to kind of make that make sense. And then you, the rest of us just fluff. So it doesn't matter. It's kind of like fate in that regard. It doesn't matter if it's seven tentacles trying to rip you apart. If it's uh, 
spindly things being shot at you, whether there's an ice ray or a freeze ray or magma. All I know, <laughs> magma, is that it's a level one, two, three, four, five, and I know how to translate that into game terms. So as a DM, I kind of feel like, or as a GM, I should say, that it would be very flexible and easy to run. So I like that, but from the player side, I didn't quite care for it. Uh, Scott and Matthew, you guys want to jump in here? I know Caleb and I have been talking over you a bit. I got nothing. <laughs> I don't even like chicken. I feel like I'm the worst person on these table topics <laughs> habitually. I'll just cut you out anyways. The only thing I would have to say about the specific mechanics are, are twofold. One, uh, I liked your comment, Michael, that it was a little unimaginative of the system to stick to the D20, D20s. I mean, it, 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 at this point, it has cultural capital. But if, if it's not justified in its use in the system, then you, you should put that cultural capital aside. The, the only other thing I, I had to take from it is that the system was not sufficiently... The technical details of it were not sufficiently gripping to me to remember between today and when we played our, our one-shot. That a lot of those small details that you and Caleb were discussing uh, slipped through my mind. Whereas um, with other one-shot systems that we've tried on uh, the trials, the, the the mechanical details have stuck better in my mind. And so to me, that takeaway is that, um, at least for this exposure, for how I was feeling that day when we did the one-shot, the mechanics weren't interesting enough to really find a place to stick in my memory and me, have me think about them for a long time. So they didn't really latch, you didn't really latch onto them. But again, we all said we had fun. So I don't want to anybody think, because we we're talk we're kind of focusing on some of the gritty stuff here and, and theoretically some of the negative stuff, but we had a lot of fun playing this game and there's obviously tons of enjoyment to be had from it. Uh, but I think the kind of the purpose of us doing these table topics is to kind of get into those nitty gritties. So one of the things I want to talk about that I did really like uh, that we didn't talk about earlier is the GM intrusion and not just the mechanics of it, but sort of the idea behind it. And I see a lot of nods across there. So I'll, I'll go to my Crunchmaster first. Caleb, what were your kind of thoughts about the GM intrusions, positive, negative, and, and how do you think you could incorporate that into other games? Like traditionally D&D &D 5e is kind of what we're playing now. Uh, so what were your thoughts about that? Helping me remember what GM intrusions were. <laughs> I remember that they were... I didn't want to have to say it. <laughs> <laughs> I remember. I must have. I must have misread your head nod. I thought you were agreeing with me. I w I was agreeing with you because the term struck my memory, and I was expecting you to ramble a little bit about it because you do that, and I was gonna play off of that. But you threw me in the hot seat. Nice. And now we've demonstrated how much of a failure I am. Um, I remember that the GM intrusions had echoes of, echoes of fate in that you could throw a trouble at somebody for a fate point kind of thing, but I don't remember exactly what they did mechanically. Do you? Yes. Okay, so then basically the way it worked is a GM intrusion is where the GM decides to add drama to the story and just arbitrarily decide that X, Y, or Z happens. So you're walking through uh, a, landmine, a field of landmines, and the GM says, okay, Caleb, you just stepped on a landmine. That just happened. But... It's offered as a complication, and you as the player always have the option to say, no, it didn't. Okay, then you have to give him an XP. So if you don't have any XP, you cannot refuse, which is a lot how fate points work. If you accept the GM intrusion, you get two experience points, one of which you keep and one you immediately give away to another player. 
there are individual GM intrusions and there's also group intrusions. So you could be in a situation where they're about to be attacked by an overwhelming force and the GM just says, okay, you guys are going to get captured and you're going to wake up tomorrow in a jail cell tied up. Here's your XP. Or you can say no and we'll play this battle out or we'll figure out another way. And it's just a way for the GM to just arbitrarily decide certain things happen for the sake of the story or for drama. But the players always have the option to say no. Okay, now I remember. And I remembered what I liked about them was because uh, essentially there's nothing different with the GM intrusion than what you regularly do in telling a story. The GM says, hey, this thing is happening. In most games, the players kind of have a social contract that they're going to go along with what the GM says. But I think the way role-playing games are evolving right now are to be more social storytelling. And there's a lot more encouragement for players to have more input with the events. Whether it's something like Fate where you kind of have that wiggle room and everybody can define or do a quick retcon on events to something like Numenera, where the players can just say no and try to deal with it. Um, Numenera really mechanically incorporated that concept into the system uh, because XP in Numenera is not a running numerical total uh, like it is in a classic D&D sense. Uh, you gain smaller amounts of XP and then expend them for certain benefits or to buy certain aspects of your character as you level up. It really gives players a sense of, do I want to accept the hardness or the difficulty for the benefit of leveling up my character and gaining a new, a new ability or a new skill, or do I want to have a slightly easier going through this part of the campaign and experience more of the story. I think either way, you're telling a better story. So it's good. And I, I definitely think that with a little bit of manipulation, it can be easily applied to any other game you're playing at the table. Well, I think for me, what I think of, as you said, I think the DMs kind of do this or GMs kind of do this anyway in some ways. But let's say, for example, you guys are riding, uh, or you're in a wagon and you're riding through a plains. And I think it would be cool as a DM if a giant dragon or, or a rock sweeps by, grabs your wagon, and flies off with it. Because I just think that's going to be an interesting story of what do you do now? Do you get dropped off in the nest? How do you get away from the nest? You know, are there uh, dragon hatchlings or, or rock hatchlings in there? That's a cool story. So I can either just as a as DM fiat say that happens, but then you could have a situation where people go, well, I want to take an opportunity attack. I'm set for a charge or as this happens, as that happens. So then you got to get into like a rulesy way. Well, how does this happen in the rules? Does the dragon make a snatch attack? You know, can someone make a saving throw to just jump out of the wagon and now I've inadvertently split the party? And, you know, how do I handle that? Because now... You know, if I carry through on my idea, the dragon's going to fly a thousand miles away with this wagon with two characters on it. And there's one other character that got away. What do I do? So I think it makes a lot of sense just to codify that and say, listen, I think it would be a cool story if this dragon flies off with this wagon. You guys can say, yes, here's some XP. 
Or you can say no, and the dragon misses and it flies off and, and gets a cow from the field instead. And it gives sort of a, a player agency back to the players in a way that's very well defined. And I like that negotiation because they can even say, well, where's this going to go? And then as the DM, you can kind of explain because this, this is a social storytelling game now. It's not like in the olden days of D&D where the DM was God and, and you just kind of followed along. I, you know, I grew up in that system and it, and it has its place, but I think we've evolved past that. So I really like that. Now, translating it to D&D, I think it's more of just the explanation. Like, yes, I'm about to capture you guys with guards, and I know some of you would like to just fight it out and try to get away. But trust me, as your DM, I've got a cool story. I'm going to put you guys in an interesting position. Go with me here, and I promise you it'll be a better story. And you could even give them an XP bonus. You know, I don't do XP in my games, but it, that's the rules you're kind of supposed to or encouraged to. So you could say, I'll give you guys 100 experience points if you will just go with me here. So I think it could be pretty easily incorporated into a traditional D&D game. If you do XP-less, then maybe you have to say, you know, you go with this in the next scene, there's going to be a chance to get an item or you're going to try to, you're going to get something that comes, uh, your character wants. I don't really like that as much, but since I don't use XP, I kind of have to. So what about you, Matthew? Um, I think you're, you're probably a player more than a GM, I believe. So from a player standpoint, how would you view, you're shaking your head no. So from either a GM or a player standpoint, how would you feel about GM intrusions uh, in Numenera and then translating them into a different game? I don't remember them happening in Numenera for us, but from what we uh, just described, I think they're, they're an interesting way to say, to, to try something out to see if your players are, are into it. Like, hey, I want to do this. What do you guys think about it? And if they're real sticklers and they're like, no, I don't like that at all, then you don't have to do it. But if they're okay with it, then you get to do what you're thinking in your head easier. And uh, I think that that would translate well into into other games easy enough. You know, you could say, hey, guys, I've, you know, I'm thinking this. It'd be a lot better for you X, Y, Z. What do you think? And, you know, people tell you what they want if you ask them it's better than you just surrounding them with guards and they they happen to roll all the right numbers kill all the guards and then you're like fuck all right well uh here's the second wave and it's like <laughs> are you trying to kill us and it's like no i'm just trying to get you where i need you to go you know it's it's a little bit easier than than drowning them in troops up oh, did you see the cavalry on the mountain they're about to come down are you kidding me we're out of potions <laughs> There's only 17 people in this village. We've killed 97 <laughs> people so far. Something's not adding up. Exactly. The yeah, guy, the king only had two guards. Where did the other 30 come from? <laughs> he spawned them from his back. You know, Matt brings up a really good point there in that a lot of times if a GM is trying to get a certain thing to happen and the players don't follow through with the plan they don't know is happening, the GM is scrambling and he might not show it and the players might not realize it, but the GM might be adding in new encounters. He might be restructuring the dungeon you're in. He might be re he might be scrapping the entire session because the players went left instead of went right. And I think that's a, a problem that we have all faced when running a game. And while the concept of GM intrusions doesn't fix that, 
it certainly introduces a creative way to approach that problem. And if the GM is saying, hey, I have this idea for an encounter or an event to happen. Are you guys okay to go along with it? I'll throw you a reward if we try my thing. It's, it's just a different take on the solution. So I think for the most part, that's the, the big thing we were talking about. GM intrusions was the big thing on the GM side, the dice mechanic. I like the way the characters were created, the world, and the one-use items. Is there anything else in particular that anyone wants to touch on or discuss? You know, the only thing I'd add to the excellent turn the conversation's made is, is I think, Michael, your, your compelling narrative uh, to justify basically fate points or DM compels or... or uh, you know the equivalent in the area is is has has I think motivated me to give people and get find a new way to award inspiration in my fifth edition games is to offer it to players in exchange for complications. It's it's a wonderful truth that we really are evolving as as a game toward more of a collaborative cooperative table, and I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, that being said, I think. Um, Especially viewed in that light, Nemeria seems like it was a fun game, and I think we all had a lot of fun. Yeah, actually, as you just started talking, I was like, "Huh, inspiration would be a great." And I like literally, as it was coming out of your mouth, I was like, "That's what, what we could do." Particularly the way that we're doing inspiration in our new Dead Center game, which is basically like fate points or like bennies from Savage Worlds, is that we are allowed to have more than one uh, inspiration point at a time, and we can use it after the fact just to get an additional roll as like a do-over. So in that version, yes offering inspiration like i'll give you uh inspiration individually or even as a group like i'll give the group inspiration you guys can all individually decide to re-roll something if you just go with it that would be a, a great compromise for most intrusions it's not like you're taking everything from them and basically destroying their characters but hey i'd really like for one of you guys to step on a landmine because i think it'd be fun to figure out uh how you get out of that how about everybody gets inspiration I had one DM growing up, good friend of mine, but uh, he, he really had a one-track imagination. I can't tell you how many sessions we woke up in a cage with our horses dead and all our equipment gone. Every single time. Classic. Classic. inspiration would have made me feel a lot better about that. <laughs> awesome. All right, Matthew, we'll turn to you. So uh, any sort of last things you want to cover, uh, areas that we didn't get to, or just last points you want to bring up? I, I was sad that I called Scott's character the Spider-Man character before I knew that the magic items were one use. Because he was very Spider-Man-y, but if he loses the web shooter thing and the other webby thing he had, he's just a guy. So He was Thidel, though. Future <laughs> Thidel. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty awesome how that worked out. Yeah. Yes. yes. All right, what about you, Caleb? So any last words here on Numenera? In general, I had a great time playing the one-shot. Uh, I definitely want to read through the book and get a better understanding of the rules. Uh, I think a lot of the system I would be really happy with playing or running a longer session. I think there's a lot of value in the system. I think there's a lot of great, unique things that exist. And quite clearly, just from the 40 minutes we've been talking here, uh, we've talked about quite a few ways that we can bleed over what we've learned from a system, even though we haven't learned it all yet, and apply it to another game. Uh, and I think that speaks volumes to how well Numenera was created, and it also speaks to the fact that the environment we are in as gamers, our hobby right now is existing 
in a state of flux where there's all these lines being broken from one game to another. I mean, I've only been playing for the past, you know, 15, 20 years, and it used to be that D&D was D&D, and X game was X game, and you'd play each game separately, and you might come up with new things within each game, but you didn't jump the fence. The era we are in now, between these different new games that are coming out, everything that is popping up on crowdfunding and social media where we're all talking about all the games we're playing all the time it's fostering this environment where we are now more more accepting of trying new things in a new game and no we're not holding hands around the campfire singing kumbaya quite doing that (laughs) nope nope not gonna happen but but we're talking and I think that's that's important. We're willing to try new things. We're not we're not sitting in our fences of the D and D fence. We play Dungeons and Dragons all the time, and that's all we do. And we follow the rules in the books. I mean, we still kind of do that, but we're at least except more... for that pesky rules thing. Through that, well, I know you never follow the rules, Christ. <laughs> but the the fact that we had just such a small taste of Numenera, but latched onto it and saw ways to evolve it into other things we're doing is really, really cool. I'm a Numenera fan, and I'm a big fan of stealing things from it and moving them into other games. I would agree. So, you know, for me, as said many times before, D&D is kind of in my blood. I don't know that I will find a game that's ever going to just take that away from me and I stop being the D&D guy. Numenera is not that game. I did enjoy it, and I will play it again. But it's not something that I'm going to stop my D&D games to run Numenera instead. So for me, I start thinking about it. Well, will I play it at Gen Con? Or will I I play it at another convention? And the answer is yes. I probably will look specifically for a Numenera game to play at an upcoming convention, whether it be CincyCon, uh, at Catacon, Gen Con, or any other con I can get myself to. Uh, So, yeah, it's definitely a game I want to play again. I want to explore. I want to try a couple other Mad Libs and see how I feel about the other character classes and backgrounds and foci. So I definitely I give it a high marks, but it's not going to take D&D from from my table. Uh, I want to thank Lex again for running a game for us and giving us up his time. Uh, We have a few other of the trials in the works. I have someone that has agreed to run the Cortex drama system for us. Uh, which is what Smallville uses. Um, I have someone who said they would run the Firefly RPG, the newest version for us. Uh, I have someone who's going to run Marvel Heroic for us. And I just bought the the book for Fiasco, and I've been reading through it, and I, I'd like to try to get a Fiasco, uh, the trial set up. So, But we're still looking for more games. If you run games, if you consider yourself an expert, like I run the best in the world, let us know. Hit us up. We'll see if we can hook up a game with you, a feature on the trials. Our Shadow of the Demon Lord was wildly popular and successful. I assume this one will be as well. And as always, we thank you guys for listening. So for uh, my guest host tonight, Caleb, Scott Classic, and Matthew, this has been Michael, and we will see you next time. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast, the flagship program of the RPG Academy Network. If you enjoy what we do here, then please check out therpgacademy.com and visit our site partners for additional entertainment and gaming advice. 
We do this out of love for the hobby and for you, our fans. The podcast and site content will always be free for you to enjoy and utilize. But we do have expenses related to the show. If you'd like to help out in any way, please visit patreon.com slash Academy and check out the rewards we are providing for your monthly pledges. We use all funds that come in to improve the show and give you better content and quality. And if you don't have the coin to spend, don't worry. You can still help us out in many ways. You can subscribe to our show on iTunes and or Stitcher Radio. You can leave us a five-star review. Also, if you clear your cookies and you visit Amazon or the DriveThruRPG site through our portal, we get a small percentage of what you pay, and it doesn't cost you anything extra. Just like any RPG, our site works best with open lines of communication. We love talking with our listeners about everything. Please contact us with any questions, concerns, and comments that you have. We also love to hear feedback and experiences from your own games. You can email us via podcast at therpgacademy.com and reach us on social media, such as Facebook and Google Plus at the RPG Academy. But Twitter is usually the fastest way to reach us. You can find my favorite co-host, The Caleb G, at The Caleb G. And you can find my favorite co-host, Michael, at The RPG Academy. Thanks for listening. And as always, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Yeah.